Hello everyone, welcome back to episode four of An Incomplete Field Guide to Ministry, coming to you from the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. My name is Kim Wagner, and I serve as the Assistant Professor of Homiletics at LSTC. And of course, I'm here with my wonderful co-host, Marvin Wickware, Assistant Professor of Church and Society and Ethics. Hey, you got it right. I got it right this week. I also wrote it down this week, so how are you today? <laughs> I'm doing pretty well. It's yeah. a Wednesday. It's a Wednesday. We always record on Wednesday for our listeners. And can you believe we're like headed into October? I can't, actually. Yeah. Where did September, actually, where did April through September go? Because that's really what's missing for me. Zoom ate them. Zoom ate them. <laughs> the Zoom monster got them. Well, no matter what month it is, we are so glad you are with us and we're excited for a great show today. Uh, today we're going to be thinking about models of ministry and really bringing together some of our previous conversations, thinking about foundational theologies and images of ministry, self-awareness and context, and how they kind of come together and inform our practices of ministry. We have two guests today. We have the wonderful Pastor Eric Christensen, who is the pastor to the community and director of worship here at LSTC. And then we're gonna start a new segment uh, this podcast where we're going to talk to one of our LSTC students. And today we have the wonderful Mike Markwell, who is a student at LSTC and is actually the teaching assistant for our Ministerial Leadership One class. So we're excited to have both of them in here to talk a little bit about their own ministry as well as their own models for ministry. But first, Marvin and I wanted to have a conversation today about those people that have influenced us, that has have impacted our ministries, our teaching. Um, and just to pull back the curtain a bit for those listeners who are not in our Ministerial Leadership One class, over the past month or so, uh, students in the class have been reading memoirs of ministry and are thinking about these questions, right? These questions of context and foundational theologies and embodiment and discernment with these different memoirs, which got Marvin and I thinking about those models of ministry, those folks in our lives who have influenced us as people, as ministers, and as professors. So I'm excited to have this conversation with you. Yeah, definitely. Let's start with you. I'd, I'd love to learn a, a little more about your story and, and the folks who have shaped it, uh, shaped you as you've gone through that story. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, so I was able, I think, to bubble it down to four <laughs> people, four sets of people. Um, well, three people and one group of people. <laughs> I know. I'm a preacher. You're asking me to to try to narrow all of it in a, what, five-minute segment. But I th the first person who came to mind for me was Pastor Terry Shaner. He was the senior pastor at my childhood church in uh, Maryland, where I grew up. And uh, I was about seven or eight when I first thought I wanted to be a minister. My parents caught me having church with my stuffed animals in my bedroom. <laughs> And they figured it out when I was consistently stealing grape juice and bread from the kitchen. <laughs> and I, they would look in my room and I'd have the 
you know, animals lined up in pews with hymnals and Bibles and, you know. What were the pews? Oh, I had these little, like, blocks. So I, like, lined (laughs) them up and put the stuffed animals on them. Yeah. And I had my little keyboard. I learned hymns. It was, we had full church in my bedroom. But when I thought I felt called to ministry at seven or eight, I remember I told my parents and the following Sunday, they dragged me to the front of the church uh, up to Terry Shaner, who was not the children's minister. I really respected him, but I didn't know him. Mm -hmm. And he was like six foot four in this long black robe. And they said, tell Pastor Terry what you told us. And I was embarrassed, <laughs> like as a kid, right? And um, I said, well, I think I want to be a minister when I grow up. And uh, I expected him to dismiss me or to be like, you know, that pat you on the head, mm-hmm. like, oh, that's sweet, you know, and send me on my way. But instead, he looked back and forth between me and my parents and then landed on my parents and made eye contact with them and said, well, you know, Samuel was called at a young age, too. Mm, That's good. And then a year or two later, he called me up and said, hey, I'm running a discernment class. Would you like to come? So I'm, what, 10 now? So he picks me up from my house, drives me to the church, and I sit in a room with like 30, 20, 30, 40, and 50-year-olds with my discernment book in front of me. And he had me go to all these classes, and he told me, you don't have to say anything, you just have to listen. And just I, like Samuel. Eli said, just like lay Samuel. by the altar, you just have to listen. That's right. And he was my Eli, like, telling me, be quiet and listen, which probably was a lesson I needed throughout <laughs> my childhood. But I will tell you, when I discerned the call to ministry as a child, I expected to be dismissed. Mm-hmm. Not that I had not had supportive adults in my life. But, you know, it's kind of a funny thing for a kid to say. And I think the fact that Pastor Terry took me seriously mm-hmm. really led me to trust the movement of the Spirit yeah, and made me a better listener to the words and the work of the Spirit mm-hmm. and to be more receptive to it. And so I think a lot of my discernment from that point on, whether it's to teaching or to PhD or to a particular congregation or to a particular kind of ministry all stemmed from Pastor Terry taking me seriously as a kid and saying, trust the spirit, like trust what the spirit is doing. And, and not just saying, but but actually taking practical steps like you would with somebody that you're you're kind of forming for ministry. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that continued. I was very lucky. I could name all the pastors, right? But um, the next one I'll jump to, and I promise these will go faster. The second one is Reverend Georgiana Salyers, who was my campus minister in college. And I attended school at a campus where most of the campus ministries were really large and really conservative. Mm -hmm. And that was just not my home. And so I eventually found a home with this smaller campus ministry that intentionally set out to be a place of radical welcome, especially for those who had questions, who had doubts, who had been hurt by the church, Mm -hmm. um, who believed in God, but weren't sure about this whole organized religion thing. And she was an ordained United Methodist minister, still is. And uh, I found a home with her and in her ministry, but I also found in her a mentor who said, that I could feel a call to ministry 
I could love God's people and I could ask really hard questions of the scriptures, of the church, of my denomination. Um, And so she gave me that permission to feel both called and to love God and to question in hard Mm -hmm. and good ways. So she actually, I think, set me on the road to seminary Mm -hmm. in a really intentional way, as well as probably into PhD work. That, yeah. that kind of desire to have hard questions answered or to at least approach hard questions. Mm-hmm. The third is a group. Um, when I was in seminary, I served as a chaplain at a maximum security women's prison uh, for two and a half years. And those women taught me more than probably any group of people could ever teach. And what they taught me at the end of the day was how to hold hurt and hope together Mm. and how to live in the tension of ridiculous, painful, evil brokenness Mm -hmm. and to still sing praises to God and to still trust that the promises of God are still true. Um, And I think about the choir there. There was a choir and I got to work with a choir a lot. And these are women who maybe I visited in lockdown Mm -hmm. a week before And then the next week when they got out after being there for whatever reason, and they came to choir practice, it was incredible to hear them sing with earnestness, with authenticity, with a sense that this was just gosh darn true. Praise the Lord. God is with me. The Holy One is in this place. And I just remember that room would always transform when those women sung. Mm -hmm. And it was just living with them in that tension between barbed wire and prison walls and hope and the kingdom of God. And to me, that has informed deeply my ministry. It's also informed my writing, right? I work on trauma and preaching and like, what does it mean to preach in that tension? Uh, The last one is, of course, my advisor, Dr. Tom Wong, who is was my preaching professor in seminary and then later served as my PhD mentor and advisor. And um, just a quick word, he is a wonderful mentor in that he always uh, encouraged me to trust my voice, but then made my voice better, hmm. right? He, he critiqued my writing, still does, uh, really hard, but he does so in a way that says, you have something to say and I want you to say it the best way you can. Um, He also taught me how to blend being a rigorous academic with a kind minister, Mm -hmm. right? Um, To hold together academic work and pastoral care. And he does it with grace and excellence. And that has been a model for me. So that was the most long-winded set of four. (laughs) But it feels to me like that's kind of the evolution of my ministry and my writing and my teaching. So those four folks really modeled for me all of those things and kind of guided me and built on one another, Mm -hmm. right? The gifts that each of them gave me built to bring me to this point and continue to influence me. So Yeah, and and I I can see talking about building on one another, especially how that that first childhood pastor, I I don't recall his name. Terry. There you go. Uh, How Pastor Terry's openness to to ministry, to the work of the Spirit as it presented itself, 
prepared you to be open to the different sorts of ministry that were offered to you as models uh, as as you've gone through life. Absolutely. I That's exactly right. And the way that the Spirit has interwoven mm-hmm. in all of these relationships and experiences. And I continue to lean on that to be perceptive to where the Spirit is moving, even as we figure out how we teach preaching online in 2020, mm-hmm. right? Like, how is the Spirit still moving in these new times and these new teachings opportunities? Yeah. So. If, if I can ask one quick follow-up question. Yeah. You, you talked about how these different ministers have shaped you. How do you today, right, going forward, uh, draw on what they've taught you, right? Is it all just kind of formation you can find if you dig into what you're doing? Or, or do you kind of self-consciously think about these models? I think that's a great question. I think it's a little bit of both. I think there are times that I lean on the wisdom of, you know, the wisdom of the ancestors, but Mm -hmm. wisdom of the mentors, right? That when I hit a a wall, when I'm struggling to write, when I'm having a hard time holding together the pastoral and the professor, Mm -hmm. that I lean intentionally on the wisdom that these folks have given me, I think, about them. But at the same time, I think that a lot of times their words, their encouragement, the ways their uh, guidance has shaped me just bubbles up naturally, right? Mm-hmm. So I think there's a both and there. Uh, there's a way that they, that I call upon them uh, within me and within my experience mm-hmm. for certain moments, but then there's ways that they just bubble up. Yeah. And they also shape the way I hope I interact with other people, right? I think mm-hmm. very intentionally about them when I encounter someone who reminds me of me or someone who has hard questions, Georgiana comes in. Mm -hmm. Or when I sense that the spirit is moving and I want to affirm that in someone, Pastor Terry Mm -hmm. rises in, you know, and gives me that encouragement to to be, hopefully to share that gift with my students and my colleagues um, and my parishioners when I was a pastor. So that's a great question. So I'd love to know who has shaped you, who are have been models of teaching and ministry for you. Yeah, um, the the two answers I'm going to give are answers that everybody who's been a student of these people would give. Uh, the first one is James Cohn. Yeah. I I did my MDiv at Union Theological Seminary in New York, uh, and. Dr. Cohn was my first systematic theology teacher. Uh, He was an important mentor for me. He advised me when I did my thesis. I took as many classes with him as I could. Uh, So he was just at at a time where where my kind of formative Christian experience had been one of those big, fairly conservative college fellowships that you talk about. Um, Dr. Cohn showed me that my faith can actually make sense in, in terms of my personal commitments and, mm. and my passion for justice, right? Yeah. So, so that's really the, the first thing. Um, I guess to back up, the big umbrella I would use for, for how Dr. Cohn has shaped me is, is in terms of providing a spiritual grounding and a, a theological accountability for my ministry of teaching. So... Cohn, whenever I would come to him with a question, would say, well, where's your passion? 
Right. Whatever you're trying to figure out, whether you should do this thing or that thing, say this thing or that thing, what is your passion telling you? Right. Like pay attention to to deep inside to whatever is twisting your guts. Right. Yeah. And and pay attention to that and follow it. Um, He would talk about the contradictions in the world as as what guides theological reflection. You you attend to what's going on in the world, find where it doesn't seem like it could possibly reflect God's will and God's love, and and you dig into that and and try to find out where is God at work in relation to this. And so that that question of where's your passion is is kind of a way of checking in with are you paying attention to the world when you're asking what you should do individually? Yeah. Oh, I love that. That bringing together of the personal discernment with the needs mm-hmm. of the world. Absolutely. And and that's that's what that was the the task of a scholar, of a theologian for mm-hmm. Come, right? Mm-hmm. Was was oh, to to be a person who's responsible to the world around them and to speaking God's truth in relation to that world. Yeah. Cohen also in in that in that theological sense um, really taught me to to take seriously the beauty of blackness, mm-hmm. right? I, I mean, this is something that I was raised with, but but had never been taught to articulate it in huh. the way that that Cohen taught me to articulate it and to to hold it as just as important a principle as the other values that, that might guide my life, things like honesty or integrity, um, that taking beauty seriously and finding it within myself when the world would reject it was something of the utmost importance. And, and that's something that um, as a black academic in a predominantly white academy and a predominantly white institution, that, that I've had to, to take seriously to sustain me is that what I have to offer is beautiful. The people that I'm offering it for are beautiful, that all the kind of rejection of the academy is not relevant compared to God's embrace and God saying, you're good, you're beautiful. Uh, the, the last thing that, that Cone uh, gave me that I'll say here, at least, there are many, many things. Of course, of course. Um, if you're going to believe in God, basically, if, if you're going to believe that God is with you, then believe God is with you when you take risks. Um, that that passion that's guiding you isn't going to lead you somewhere God can't follow. Mm. So when you're worried that you're, you're going to say something that goes a little too far, you're going to talk about white supremacy in a place where people don't want to talk about white supremacy, yep. believe that God is with you. Right. Don't don't stop because you're worried that I've gone too far. Be wise, sure, with relationships and all of that. But don't stop just because you're worried. Right. That's the time to to really pray, to discern where is God calling me? And if God is calling me to speak up, then do it and do it boldly. And I think that served me pretty well. I, I, I seem yeah. to have a remotely successful career so far. Well, and I can see those influences in your writing, in the conversations that we've had, in the ways that you uh, contribute to our conversations as colleagues. Mm-hmm. And I think that's wonderful. I love that. All of that. Yeah. yeah. The passion and then the, the idea of following that passion 
you can't follow that passion anywhere. God can't join you, right? Yeah. God is already there. Yeah. That's powerful. Yeah. And, and you, you mentioned ancestors, right? And that's, that's very much cone for me, right? As this beloved ancestor, he was before he passed. He is now. Right. Um, every time I sit down to write, I have his advice in my head. Every time I'm going to speak up, i I can feel him, right, and and his presence and his influence um, supporting me. The the second uh, mentor model that I'll give is my dissertation advisor Willie Jennings, um, still alive, thankfully, wonderful person. I love him. Um, he provided me where Cone provided me kind of a spiritual grounding and and that theological accountability. Uh, Jennings has provided me with a, a model of pastoral presence um, and, and a pedagogical philosophy. Cohn was a very pastoral person, actually, despite what kind of his broad general public perception is through his writing. Right, right. He was a very caring person. He, Absolutely. He met my kid and, you know, invited us into his apartment and all that. Yeah. But um Jennings is is this person who anybody you ask is is going to talk about how he'll just sit with you and care about what's going on with you, um, and and so he he was always heeding the spirit, I would say, and and inviting people to to bring their relationships right uh, and and their their personal needs into their discernment, right? To let those things guide them to trust that the spirit was working through them rather than this is, this is me and my kind of doctoral preparation for, for teaching rather than letting the, the kind of standards of the academic guild, as we mm -hmm. call it, guide mm -hmm. them, yeah. right? You had to navigate those standards, but your relationships should be what's helping you to guide that that right to guide you through Absolutely, that yeah. um and and so a, a quick story uh while i was in my phd um beth and i were trying to have kids and she had a miscarriage mm -hmm. and so i just couldn't work for a semester basically yeah uh and and dr jennings just said that's okay right mm -hmm. You need to take care of yourself right now. You and Beth need to take care of each other. Take the take your time, right? Yeah. The work will still be here when you're back. Absolutely. I'll check in with you. And that was it, right? There was never any pressure at any point to to move past that, to to make sure that I was on track for success or whatever. He right. cared about my success, but but he cared more about me as a person and in has invited me to care more about my students as people than the kind of abstract you know, model of success that's presented. Absolutely. Uh, really quickly, the last couple things I would say, um, Jennings is always laughing at everything, <laughs> no matter how terrible. He's always laughing through it, uh, not, not to bypass it, right, but to, to provide a broader context of God's abundance, Right. Uh, yeah. in, in the midst of of the terrible things that we talk about as scholars who talk about race. Right. right. Um, and and he he always had this just wildly inclusive classroom. Right. Mm -hmm. So if somebody brought their baby because they had a baby and the baby, it turns out, needs parental care. 
she was totally cool with it, right? And the baby starts crying in the middle of class, and he just goes, oh, wonderful. It's it's God's spirit, right, speaking to us through this baby's cries or laughter. Let's all stop for a moment and just enjoy this, right? Um, That's beautiful. Yeah, it was wonderful. Whatever people brought into the classroom, it was welcome there, and they were welcome there. Um, and I, I think that laughter and that that inclusivity kind of combined together in, in this kind of pastoral presence to a group that I, I haven't met too many professors who can really manage that. Maybe in their office, they have that kind of presence, but but to the entire, you know, 75 people in some of his classes, right. feeling like he was a, a kind of pastoral presence while teaching was was really special. That's amazing. The, yeah. The last thing is is just that he could invite people into engagement with this complex theory uh, and these challenging theologies while leaving room for them to do what they would with them, right? Not Not kind of dumbing things down so that everybody would just get it and accept it without any trouble, but giving them what he thought was the best stuff out there and then saying hey, it's okay if you don't understand every page of this article. Uh, It's okay if you don't get to all the reading, right? We're not here to master knowledge. We're here to to find something that we can work with for the sake of our ministry and the people that it's to serve. That's awesome. That's incredible. And, And I can see in you, in your excitement, as you talk about both these Uh, both these mentors, both these ancestors, right? Mm -hmm. That they have had a deep influence, not only on your teaching and your writing and your scholarship, but also on just who you are as a person. Yeah. Um, And that those are the, the kind of uh, things that you aspire to share with your students. So, yeah, I I would say uh, another thing that comes from Cone is that who you are as a person shouldn't be very far from your scholarship and your teaching. Well, and even uh, Willie Jennings, you talked about him saying, like, he cared about you as a person and not just your academic success. But what I would say is that that's saying that who you are as a person and your total health, emotional, spiritual health is part of your success, Mm -hmm. right? That you can't be truly successful, and I'm using air quotes here, academically, if you're not also a whole and healthy person or seeking toward health. Yeah, I, I think the the kind of success that you're going to find if if you're not that whole and healthy person or or striving for that, prioritizing that, is a kind of success that just serves all of the things that if if you're me or Dr. Jennings or you, that you're teaching against, right? Right, exactly. You find success within the kind of colonial system that that you want to dismantle. Absolutely. Exactly. Well, this has been so great. I could have this conversation all day. I think we did. Oh, did we? Okay, good. (laughs) Well, I hope that our listeners enjoy it as much as I did. Um, But thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. All right. We'll see you all in a bit.
Welcome back, everyone. We are so thrilled to have with us today uh, Pastor Eric Christensen, who is the pastor to the community and director of worship here at LSTC. Uh, welcome, Eric. We are so glad to have you here. Thanks for having me. It's good to be with you. All right. We would love for you to just introduce yourself, your ministry, and maybe a little bit of how you came to LSTC. Sure. Well, uh, as you said, my name is Eric Christensen. I use pronouns like he, him, and his. Uh, and I serve uh, as pastor of the community and director of worship at LSTC. And this is the beginning of my fourth year in that role. Uh, prior to that, I served as a redevelopment pastor uh, for 11 years uh, in a small congregation on the north side of Chicago, St. Luke's Lutheran Church of Logan Square. Uh, and that was my first call. Um, and it was a pretty extraordinary call uh, in terms of how it shaped me and my understandings of ministry. Um, but it was also a call that really uh, used a lot of the, the gifts and skills I had developed in my life before ministry or before pastoral ministry, I really should say. Um, because one of the first things that, uh, that my dad told me when I was 14 years old and for the first time said, you know, I think I might be called to ministry. My dad, who is a Lutheran church musician, uh, said to me, well, of course you are. You're baptized. So um, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and well, and in fact, he followed that up by saying um, after I said, no, I, I mean, I think I'm I think I'm called to like maybe pastoral ministry or parish ministry. And he was like, oh, if I could steer you clear of two things, um, I would say, like, don't be a musician and don't work for the church. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, well. uh, he said as as a church musician. Um which uh, over time, I think I, what I actually came to realize he was saying was, I mean, in the moment, what he literally said was, uh, you know, these are both, you know, both like life as an artist and life as a as a, a, a church worker require a lot of time, a lot of care, a lot of energy and attention, and often don't like compensate you in ways that uh, make that uh, obviously a worthwhile trade-off. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and so don't do it unless the work itself is rewarding. Yeah. Um, if, if you are getting life out of this work, if it, if, if following these sorts of um, vocational calls brings you life, that's a great reason. Um, but, but I think part of the subtext to his response, which I kind of learned over the course of time was, um, you don't have to follow in my footsteps. Mm -hmm. Like the, the world is wide open to you and, um, there isn't some script that you have to follow about, you know, what a good son or what a good Christian or what a, you know, what a good person does, like follow your, follow your own, um, inner teacher. Yeah. So, uh, so, you know, I, I had that in the back of my mind and I had, you know, a variety of other sorts of vocations in mind. And then when I was in college, I came out, uh, at the beginning of my sophomore year as a gay person. And this was in 1992. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, a good nearly 15 years before the ELCA changed its policies with regard to LGBTQIA plus people. Um, and I kind of just assumed at that moment that what that meant was that I wouldn't have a ministry or a career in the church. And I, you know, got my bachelor's in psychology and I worked for the first few years after, uh, graduating, uh, with runaway homeless and street dependent youth, uh, in Minneapolis first as, uh, a shelter worker and a counselor for runaway kids. And then as a case manager for kids who were living on the street uh, or were actually coming off the street and into supportive housing and helping, helping uh, these young people get 
GEDs and other sorts of um, work preparation and right. uh, and to begin to build kind of a, a safe, independent life for themselves. Um, and then in a domestic violence center, working with kids who were uh, in violent dating relationships or witnessing violence at home and doing um, anti-violence education uh, in high schools around Minneapolis. Mm. So I was doing all that kind of work. And this is, it's funny because I was listening to some of your previous episodes and I know that both of you also, you know, kind of came into your current vocations through uh, education. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that was, that was the case for me as well, that I was working with young people. I was, you know, well, actually my first year out of college, I worked for Boston Public Schools as a teacher's huh. aide in um, a junior high classroom for kids who had been removed from, from general education for emotional and behavioral disorders. Huh. And so I was in a classroom, special ed classroom with 10 students and two teachers mm-hmm. uh, and a police uh, officer outside the door of our building and a metal mm-hmm. detector as students walked in. And uh, there were 55 students in our school and all but three were students of color. Mm-hmm. And I remember just thinking, yeah. um, at face value, it sort of seems like emotional behavioral disorders um, is standing in as some sort of uh, like frame for uh the embodied consequences of structural racism on young people's bodies, you know, like, um, and then I had to just ask myself, is, is this the place where I want to make an intervention into that, um, or not? Uh, and so, um, you know, when I ended up doing youth work back in the twin cities, I moved back to the twin cities after a year, um, was doing youth work there. Uh, and, you know, again, 40 to 60% of the young people that I was working with on the streets were LGBTQIA+. Um, many of them were people of color, like far dis- disproportionate to the number of people of color in the, in the Metro Twin Cities area. Mm-hmm. And it was really clear, oh, no, what we're, what we're really dealing with here is the consequences of uh, poverty and domestic violence and um, kind of a broken immigration policy uh, and uh, homophobia and heterosexism. And, uh, so, you know, after a few years of that, again, I had to ask myself, is this the place where I want to be making my intervention on those issues? And I actually, I got to a place where I felt really, um, frustrated and, and kind of angry and trapped because I could tell that it wasn't, it wasn't actually the place where I wanted to make my intervention on that. Um, I loved my, I loved the kids that I was working with. I loved my coworkers. I loved the Twin Cities. I loved the organization I was working for. It was like at the, at, at the surface, everything was great and I was deeply unhappy. Mm-hmm. Um, and finally, a really dear friend of mine from college uh, who uh, is a devout atheist and um, it had been kind of a, a running conversation in our friendship and our lives together took me uh, out for breakfast on New Year's Day and told me it was time for me to go to seminary. Huh. Um, and I had been hearing that since I was a kid because, you know, my dad was a, uh, a church worker mm-hmm. and people had been saying, oh, you're going to be a pastor someday. And I, you know, it didn't seem out of the realm of possibility, but I also didn't take that kind of input very seriously. It just seemed like the kind of thing that church people would say yeah. to, you know, a PK. Right. Um, of course. And, you know, hearing this coming from my friend, what struck me was that he was really he was he was naming something that he saw in me that didn't have any connection to kind of his 
perspective on the world or, or his view of, you know, what's good and worthy or, you know, ways to spend your time in life. And that it was truly a selfless assessment of me. It was like, mm-hmm. right. I know you. And for you, this is the direction your, your life is pointing. Um, and I remember saying something to him like, you know, as an overeducated middle-class white guy, like, why would you point me in the direction of the one job that I'm sort of structurally barred from uh, accessing? <laughs> like, you know, it's like it's not like there aren't other options for me. Right. Uh, and he said something along the lines of, um, well, one, because you're miserable and <laughs> you, know, you, you need to, like, do the thing that will make you happy. Um, and he said, and two, you keep telling me, like, that the church won't let you be a pastor or the church won't let you you know, pursue ministry. But at this point, the church hasn't even had to do that. Like you have Mm. so thoroughly internalized the church's no that you've said it to yourself for them. Yeah. And right now you are functioning as the agent of your own oppression. And he was like, I think honestly, that's the thing that you're most upset about. And, Hmm. uh, and, and so it really, you know, he just let me sit in the tension of that observation And I realized it was true. It was like, I was angry at myself because I actually knew what I wanted to be doing with my life. And I wasn't doing it because the rules said I couldn't do it. And I was a good rule following boy Mm. and had been since I was a kid. And it was how I had, you know, it was how I had excelled in school. And it was how things had come, you know, easily to me because I knew what the rules were and I followed them. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and it was this really, it was a really pivotal moment in my life where I realized uh, in order for me to kind of get my soul back, I had to be willing to step into a space where my existence broke the rules and to not know how the story ends. Yeah. And so that was the pact I made with myself was as I headed off to seminary, uh, I said, in all likelihood, this ends with me getting kicked out. Mm. Um wow. And when that happens, I know I have a future, you know, there will be, there will be other jobs, there will be other opportunities and I will have done my job. I will have played my part and I will be able to wash my hands of this and be done. Hmm. Uh, you know, but then of course what happens is I got to seminary, uh, like Dr. Wagner, I went to the Candler School of Theology, uh, at Emory University down in Atlanta. Yay. Uh, yay. (laughs) And And I loved it. I loved it. I mean, everything about the coursework, everything about the practical education, the, the, the contextual education, the opportunities to practice being a pastor. I mean, yeah. I loved all of it. Um, and, you know, at the same time, I was going through candidacy in the ELCA. And, you know, as you know, the candidacy process has three steps. It has, you know, entrance and then endorsement and then approval. And at each of those first two steps, my candidacy committee said, well, you know, right now we're not obligated to ask the question or enforce compliance with the policy. Mm-hmm. But just so you know, you know, like the policy is still in place and you're probably not going to get through this. I kept saying, yep, I understand that. And that's, you know, <laughs> wow. that's that's a big part of the story I have about this. But um, I'm, I'm going to stick with it. Yeah. Uh, and um Then uh, I finished my three-year MDiv at Emory, and I went and did a year of full-time internship in a little Lutheran congregation on the Jersey Shore. And then halfway through my my final year um, uh, of my my Lutheran year at at the Lutheran Seminary in Philadelphia, I went 
final uh, interview, and I was removed from ELCA candidacy for being openly gay. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was a horrible moment. Uh, and it certainly it was, you know, agonizing in lots of ways. Yeah. But a thing I remember about that moment is sitting in that room and that uh, it wasn't just me that felt horrible. Like I felt horrible and the people in the candidacy committee felt horrible. Many of them I could yeah. see had been yeah. crying and uh, it felt like they had done something wrong. They felt like, like they, you know, they felt, yeah, they felt some sense of um, guilt around that. Right. And I remember just saying to them in that moment, um, I'm worried for you because, uh, you know, I'm certainly sad by this decision and this outcome, but I'm proud of how I've carried myself in it. Sure. And I worry that tonight you are going to go home and you are going to be, you know, grieving uh, this moment and that you're not going to be proud of what you've done. And, um, and I think I'm, con I'm concerned for you and I'm concerned for the church that has done this to you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we, we are actually all of us called to be building the church that doesn't do this to people any longer. Um, so that was, that was a really, it was a, a formative moment for me again. And it also, for me, kind of marked the distance that I had to travel from being a good rule following boy. Who thought, you <laughs> right. Know, when they tell you no, then, you know, uh -huh. that's the answer and you have no option but to like move on with your life uh, to a space of realizing, well, you know, uh, rules change all the time, but that those changes don't come easily and they don't come without sacrifice. And, and that that process of hard work and sacrifice can be some of the most joyful work that you'll do with your life. And actually it, it can be the thing that helps you to live with yourself in, in the context of a world that can make, uh, that, that can ask you to make some pretty big compromises around your integrity. So. Well, and something I, I hear in in that story of of that that meeting with your committee is that even through this, I, I think of a transition, you know, from rule following to rejecting rules or something. But really, it seems like it's it's this transition from focusing on rules to focusing on your ministry, so that even when you're coming into conflict with these rules, what you did in that moment isn't go well, these rules are terrible. Although, I mean, you said that very gracefully and eloquently, but you took care of those people that that you were there with in that moment. <laughs> yeah, actually, it's funny. They, they noticed that. They said, um, they said, this is so strange. They said, uh, we just removed you from candidacy and you're pastoring us. Mm -hmm. right. And I remember, I remember just thinking like, well, isn't that ironic? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe God's saying something to you yeah. right now. <laughs> Oh my God. Did you, did you hear that too? Yeah. yeah. The spirit is um, speaking. So, so I was removed from candidacy and I went back to work uh, with runaway and homeless youth as a community organizer for a national organization uh, that had, you know, based me out of DC, but I, I was traveling about 50% of the time and I had a region that went from Boston all the way down to Tampa. And I just spent a lot of time on the road um, in cities up and down the eastern seaboard, um, bringing together people who cared about what was happening to homeless kids and training them in how to do safe and ethical outreach and um, a little bit of light, like legislative advocacy with them. And in the meantime, I was getting really involved with Extraordinary Lutheran Ministries, mm -hmm. which uh, is what we now call, uh, it, it's the organization that 
uh, was formed out of the merger of two previous organizations, uh, Lutheran Lesbian and Gay Ministries and the Extraordinary Candidacy Project. Uh, and they were um, identifying both congregations that would be willing to call uh, otherwise qualified LGBTQIA plus leaders and um, credentialing people who had been removed from ministry or who had not gotten through the candidacy process uh, solely on the basis of their sexual orientation or gender identity. And uh, so while I was you know, back in the world of organizing, I got rostered uh, or approved for ministry through the extraordinary candidacy process. And about a year later, uh, heard about this call to serve a small church on the north side of Chicago that was 100 years old and had grown and shrunk and was down to about 12 members, uh, mostly elderly folks in their 70s and 80s and um, looking to do redevelopment ministry. Uh, and they had been turned down for redevelopment ministry by the ELCA. And so they had come to uh, the Extraordinary Candidacy Project looking for a pastor who would be willing to guide them. And kind of in their words, they were like, well, we're a pastor or we're a congregation that nobody wants to pastor. And you're a pastor that nobody wants uh, to call. Um, and so maybe we would be a good fit. And uh, we began in 2006, what ended up being an 11 year redevelopment ministry that uh, over the course of that a uh, decade, um, we grew and became intergenerational and uh, got involved in uh, public-facing ministries in a neighborhood that was rapidly gentrifying, um, primarily around issues of affordable uh, housing and um, balanced redevelopment. Uh, and, uh, and then near the end of my time there, uh, we made the decision to sell our century-old neo-Gothic cathedral-style church building and to move into a storefront. Uh, and um, in that storefront space, uh, continued to grow and opened up a second service and, um, yeah, experienced a new vitality as all sorts of people who were never going to walk into a kind of daunting uh, neo-Gothic European-looking uh, church building, um, would walk past our windows and, and into our doors, and, and we became kind of uh, a bit of a chapel on the boulevard um, or a chapel, you know, in the, mm -hmm. in the neighborhood. Um, and, and in, in that time, I worked with uh, over 15, somewhere between 15 and 20 students from LSTC and University of Chicago and Chicago Theological Seminary, and really found that um, some of my greatest joy in the later years of that first call was working with students. And so when the pastor of the community uh, and director of worship role at LSTC came open, uh, I was intrigued and I reached out to people and asked a lot of questions and eventually uh, threw my hat in the ring and interviewed for the job and, and got the call. Um, but that was what brought me to LSTC. That's wonderful. Thank yeah. you for sharing your story with us. I want to peel back the curtain since this yes. is an educational podcast. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, we, we had framed this interview in our original plan as let's ask our wonderful colleague, Eric, about his models for ministry and all of this. And in listening to you, uh, you know, I, I mainly encounter you as a friend and a colleague. It became pretty clear that, oh, we should just be presenting Eric as a model <laughs> for ministry, not to put a heavy burden on you. But um, but just in that story, there's so much of it that I think our students, other listeners um, might be able to to learn from and wrestle with. Um, as they think about their own path through candidacy or path toward 
pastoral ministry or, or just their, their broader in, in the sense that your dad talked about, uh, their yeah. ministry just as the baptized. Uh, yep. So, so we're going to shift gears a little bit yeah. uh, and and kind of em- embrace where the spirit is moving in this moment, teaching at, at least me to to remember. Oh, right, Eric isn't just my friend and colleague. He's this amazing, you know, right. minister with this incredible story. Who's just? I mean, that story about you with your candidacy committee I is know. beautiful. It's so, amazing. so we're shifting gears a little bit, if just that's a okay. Little. Just a little. Sure. Yeah. So my question then is through all of this, through your kind of uh, ministry with uh, young people, ministry, uh, figuring out your call, pastoring your own committee as they unenroll you, um, what are some of the theological convictions that have grounded you and your work as you have Move throughout these many iterations of ministry and have led you to this work? Yeah, I think like I start with some convictions that I wouldn't I wouldn't begin by calling them theological convictions. I would sort of call them That's like fair. practical considerations, which then reveal theological um, frames. So like one of my practical considerations in work with people and communities uh, is that I've been trained to uh, view people as as deeply resilient and um, and capable, and 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 that communities are can be defined by their assets and not just their liabilities. Mm-hmm. And uh, and what that means is that when we approach people in communities that might be hurting deeply, that might be dysfunctional in some kind of obvious ways that we still don't approach people in communities as though they're just a series of problems that need to be solved. Mm-hmm. Like people are not problems to be solved. Right. Uh, people and communities are gifted and uh, created in the image of God and sacred um, and living in the tension between the world as it is and the world as it should be and hurting deeply. Uh, and that the transformative work that we do with people and communities can't rely on us being the, the ones who have the answers or us being the ones who are kind of the technocrats who can fix the thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, because frankly, we're going to leave. We're not going to stick around forever. Um, I loved, 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 loved my first call and the people there and that community have shaped me for the rest of my life. And, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm still four years later grieving the loss of that community in many ways, but I knew on day one that I was leaving and on mm-hmm. some level, because it was a redevelopment ministry, I knew that the final test of my effectiveness was that I could leave and yeah. that the transformations, um, weren't me dependent. Um, so, uh, so that kind of asset based community development perspective, uh, that kind of human centered uh, perspective that says people are not a series of problems to be solved by me, um, or machines to be fixed by me, uh, at a functional level is really just a practical consideration because if I approach my ministry in that way, then I make other people and other systems dependent on me. And that's, that's, that's flawed logic. I won't be there forever. Um, and it's, it's not very, uh, it's not effective and it's not pastoral. And it leaves other people sort of in a structurally dependent relationship. And 
so I would say a, a theological conviction or convictions that I derive from, from those practical considerations are that uh, we are part of God's creation and that God looked at the creation and called it good and very good and that God comes to us uh, certainly in Christ Jesus, but also throughout the long salvation history of God's people as the God of liberation, and that God doesn't send um, uh, spiritual engineers uh, who will kind of uh, colonize and take up residence in other people's lives and then stay there you know, for indeterminate periods of time to make sure that they don't screw it up again, um, but that God shows up in our lives to free us and to liberate us uh, and, you know, even Jesus moves on. So, um, I'm, I'm curious. So you're talking about this from the perspective of the pastor, right? Not wanting to colonize, but I, I think a lot of pastors feel pressure from their congregation to, to be that person who's going to kind of be at the center of everything, making it work. So how did you, how did yeah. you deal with any kind of desires from your congregation for you to to do that kind of colonizing work? Hmm. Well, that's, uh, <laughs> that's a great question and a really deep one that has <laughs> answers at like multiple levels. Like, because one, we have to, we have to be um, honest enough with ourselves to be clear about the ways that we uh, want to fill that role for people. I mean, many of us in the people serving professions, whether it's, you know, teaching or, or, uh, congregational ministry or politics or, you know, any, any number of fields, you know, we go into for wonderful reasons and some sort of mixed uh, motivations. And so one, we have to be really clear uh, what it is that we get out of the ministry that we do and to, and to be honest with ourselves about the places where, you know, perhaps in our own families of origin and our, or our own childhood story, we were rewarded for being, you know, the savior of the yeah. family or the, right. the redeemer of the family narrative or, uh, you know, the golden child or, you know, whatever it is. And we have to, you know, not despise ourselves for that. We have to, we have to, um, make peace with our childhood. Uh, and then also differentiate ourselves from, you know, a set of needs that we came by honestly, uh, but that ultimately, you know, may not really be what serves the people that we were called to attend to as pastors. Um, so that we we don't kind of get hooked by every uh, need that gets presented, yeah. right? Um, and then I think you know uh, one of the ways that organizing has been really powerful for me uh, is in the in the sense that we understand that one of the most transformative things that we can do, you know, that, that others can do with us and for us, and that we can do for each other, um, is to purposefully raise tension with people around the gap between the story that each of us likes to tell mm. about ourselves right. and then the decisions that each of us is making. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, you know, we, we all have narratives or stories that we tell ourselves and others about what matters to us. And then, uh, you know, there is, there are these other moral documents called our calendar and our checkbook where we spend our time, <laughs> yeah. we spend our money yeah. and we have, we have to be kind of ruthless and asking, are we spending our time and money uh, on the things that support the story that we tell about ourselves? Yeah. Or do we have a story about ourselves that's kind of divorced from the way that we actually live out our common life? Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, as a congregational pastor, that shows up in all sorts of, it shows up in council meetings. It shows up in budget meetings. It shows up in, 
um, supervision meetings with students or with staff about where are you spending your time. Um, right. And so, uh, yeah, I, 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 maybe that's a sufficient answer right there. It's just to yeah. say wonderful. One, no, that was excellent. You know, so, we have to be honest with ourselves about, you know, kind of what motivates us. And then we need to be willing to raise tension with ourselves yeah. and others about the gaps between who we say we are and who we want to be. Amen. Well, Eric, we are so grateful for your story, your openness, your wisdom. Um, we could talk to you all day. But we know that you are a busy person with a lot to do. And so before we say goodbye, we also, though, want to op offer you an opportunity to share with us maybe an event or an organization or information you would like folks to be aware of as we uh, move into the month of October. <laughs> well, you've you've queued me up for uh, an obvious ask. Um, I want to. I want to recommend to people if they're not already doing it or if it's not on their radars, uh, you know, that we are we are just weeks out from a big election and that here in the state of Illinois, we're going to have an opportunity to vote on uh, a fair tax amendment that would uh, create new revenue uh, to support uh, all of the things that that help life to flourish, particularly in black and brown communities and communities that have been deeply disinvested in by our current budgeting process. So um, so the first invitation is get out and vote. Uh, but the second invitation is that uh, there is phone banking and texting going on through the People's Lobby, uh, texting on Tuesdays and phone banking on Saturdays. Uh, and it's a wonderful opportunity to practice um, building relationships and connecting with people you don't already know. I, I've been doing phone banking and, and texting, and it takes me back to those early days of being a street outreach worker with homeless youth, where I was just walking up to random kids on the street and saying, hey, do you have someplace safe to stay tonight? <laughs> yeah. um, and now I'm picking up the phone or I'm texting people and I'm saying, hey, are you aware of the Fair Tax Amendment? And I think, you know, particularly for our students who are thinking about uh, a life in public ministry, um, many of us have been given models of ministry in which we sort of sit back and wait for people to walk through our doors. Then if they manage to get into our buildings, then we try and, you know, craft a programmatic, you know, yeah. uh, ministry with them. And I think, uh, particularly as the church continues to go through all sorts of, um, revolutions in terms of what congregational life is going to look like as churches shrink and close and other ministries take new forms. We need to get comfortable introducing ourselves to people we don't know and taking the pressure off of them to come to us and learning how to get outside our comfort zones and outside of our safety bubbles and learn how to introduce ourselves to complete strangers and talk about what matters most to us. So I actually think this is a fairly low stakes way to do that. You know, you can you can do it in your pajamas from the comfort of your living room. Uh, <laughs> And, and, you know, and still you're taking the initiative to reach out to people who need to hear that, in fact, there are better ways for us to organize our public life uh, as a state and to create the kind of resources uh, that we need in order for uh, neighborhoods and families to thrive. So uh, the invitation is to phone bank or text with the People's Lobby on Tuesdays and Saturdays now through the election. Wonderful. Well, Eric, again, deep thanks for your time and for your wisdom. Uh, Again, we look forward to maybe future conversations on the podcast with you as well. Thanks so much. This has been fun.
Welcome back, everyone. So as I mentioned at the top of the show, we are trying a whole new segment here at the end. Um, and we are having conversations with LSTC students and getting some student voices on the podcast, which we are so excited about. And this week, our first ever LSTC student guest is Mike Markwell, who is a uh, fifth year at LSTC doing what he calls his grand victory lap um, <laughs> at LSTC, which I absolutely love. Uh, he is also serving as the teaching assistant for our ministerial leadership one class. So I have had the benefit of getting to know and work uh, with Mike, and uh, he has been sharing his wonderful insights and gifts with our students. And we are so glad to have you here. Well, thank you. And thank you, Dr. Wagner and Dr. Wickler for having me on. I'm honored to be the inaugural <laughs> guest here. Yeah. And uh, if it's only a one-week segment, I know I screwed <laughs> up. <laughs> we'll let you know how it goes. All right. Yeah. No, so part of the reason I wanted to have you on here is for this week is, as you know, our students are reading these memoirs of ministry. And I know that you have read memoirs of ministry, both uh, probably in your own life, but also when you were a student in mm -hmm. Ministerial Leadership One. And I know from conversation that there was a particular memoir that has meant a lot to you and shaped your ministry. Would you be willing to share a little about it? Yeah. So when I took ML1 in the fall of 2016, I um, did this memoir project and I saw a name on there that I was familiar with and it was Sarah Miles. And my first exposure to her was I had been working in youth ministry. Um, I spent five years doing that prior to my time at seminary. Huh. And uh, part of our curriculum for First Communion was an essay, this I believe, uh, this I believe essay from Sarah Miles. And I had read it and I had used it with our confirmation or first communion students and our confirmation students. Yeah. And uh, I really liked it. And so I wanted to know more because <laughs> that essay was just kind of an introduction to this idea that she had this radical conversion to Christianity through taking communion, just yeah. walking into a church and being handed a piece of bread and experiencing Christ through that. And so I read her memoir. That's the one I chose. And um, it really, it really opened my eyes. Uh, what I really liked about this, I, or take this bread, is that Sarah Miles looks at ministry not from the perspective of a pastor, but from the perspective of somebody who just sees something theological and runs with it. So mm. this idea of food and what what communion meant and the presence of food then transformed mm. into this idea of, well, how do we feed those in our community and taking yeah. this sacramental idea right. and really putting it into the context of the world. Um, one of the things I love about her storytelling is there are elements of her ministry that I would never have experienced myself. Yeah. Um, I would never, she tells a story in the book about having to take a handgun from a battered woman and taking the firing pin out of it and putting it in a cookie jar in the back of her car. And, uh, you know, that's just a different 
image of ministry, kind of a, a real element of ministry that um, I hadn't really thought of or hadn't been aware of. And so her perspective on the different people she encountered, the different ways she encountered Christ at work through her feeding ministry, through the nonprofit she organized, um, really, really changed the way I looked at ministry. That's wonderful. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, we also wondered if if there are any other models that you've had as as you whether whether in your youth ministry work before seminary or in your current process of formation uh, for further ministry uh, that that have helped you. Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you. Um, I think that my parish pastors growing up have always continued to have an influence on me. And the pastor that baptized me, I still run into every once in a while, uh, Bob Peterson. He's retired now, but every once in a while we'll cross paths. And um, I just remember the love and support mm. that he gave um, everyone in the congregation. And then my time um, as a youth, my youth pastor was very influential, and and now we serve as colleagues. My internship site was in uh, the conference with her, and so That's we'd run right. into each other at conference oh, meetings. That's and, so fun. And yeah, to have somebody who was a role model, who kind of modeled what, um, and even when I was in youth ministry, she had modeled what loving youth were right? mm. like. Um I was not an ideal youth, you know, like I screwed up plenty and to see how, uh, how a ministry leader can support and love people, uh, through that and, and through our imperfections and with our imperfections was really powerful as well. Absolutely. Well, thanks for sharing that. So one more question. It's, as you are TAing for ministerial leadership one, as we are, leading uh, this class through these discussions around embodiment and context and uh, theological foundations for ministry and really leading them through a conversation of discernment. How would you uh, advise these folks to listen to, to receive, to be open to these models for ministry, whether it is a memoir or a childhood pastor or a colleague or um, a peer or a professor? Yeah, thank you. That's a great question. I think one of the things I particularly like about the memoirs, and if you look at the list of all the memoirs that are out there, um, Sarah Miles' book was one of the influential ones, um, but I've also read uh, Gregory Boyle's uh, Tattoos on the Heart, which was actually introduced to me by my wife, who is not in ministry professionally, and she had just read it because she's an avid reader and, uh, and said, hey, you really need to check this out. Um, but I think that just the idea of ministry can look so many different ways, mm. and the perspective that those memoirs bring or our home pastors or colleagues is that there is no right way to do ministry mm. and rather than looking at ministry as kind of this this is the way to do it it's it's exploring the context that you're in 
um, and finding what the right fit is. You know, not everyone's going to be able to do ministry the way that uh, Father Gregory Boyle does, right? right? Like he has a unique setting. He has a unique <laughs> skill set. He has spent a lot of time developing that. Um, that's not going to be the right solution, even in a urban setting in Chicago, perhaps. Right, right. Um, and so I think just to be able to celebrate the different ways that ministry happens mm-hmm. is is one of the powerful things that this memoir project kind of inspires is to think about how what themes are present in your ministry and in ministries that you admire and aspire to kind of take on part of your role models. And uh, I think that one of the powers of the memoir project and of listening to other people's experiences is that we can celebrate the ways that God is at work in different ways in our ministries. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for being here. And after this conversation, I'm sure we're going to have a second segment. So. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. This was wonderful. Thanks so much, Mike. listening this week. A special thanks to our wonderful guests, Pastor Eric Christensen and Mike Markwell. We also want to thank our uh, producer and editor, Eric Halverson, uh, Michael Leotis, who supports us on the tech side, uh, Frantitech Janek, and everyone at LSTC Tech, uh, Keith Doc Hampton for the music. We are loving it. Just to reaffirm the call that Pastor Eric made earlier in this episode, we want to encourage you to vote and to get involved in texting or phone banking on issues that are important to you. So thanks so much, Marvin, for a great day and a great episode. Yeah, thank you too. And we will see you and talk at you next week. Take care.